Well, good morning, Mercy, my Mercy family. So nice to be with warm hearts and warm faces on a cold, snowy day. You guys enjoying your early winter out there? No? Okay, well, that's honest. Um, I, uh, I've been having a fun time in the snow myself. I was in Spokane this week. Uh, and my customers even called me before I went out there. They're like, Jason, please, we've got like a foot of snow on the ground already. There's like three more feet of snow coming. It's going to be ridiculous. Uh, would you just please stay home? We can postpone. Don't, don't even worry about it. I'm like, uh, come on. I love the snow. Like, give me a break. I'm coming out. Don't even sweat it. So I flew to Spokane. I get off the plane, go to the rental car counter. People there are losing their wits. They're like, I got to have my four-wheel drive. I requested this car. I mean, it was, it was something else. And uh, so I get up to the counter, and the guy says, Sir, would you like to upgrade your vehicle with us today? And I'm like, no. I'm sorry. It's on a company dime. I can't do that. Um, you know, just, just give me the safest thing that you got. And, uh, and what he gave me was the keys to a Mitsubishi Mirage. Does anybody know what a Mirage is? Let's see if I can get it up here. Just a second. Oh. <laughs> it is a Mirage. No. Oh. This is what I found waiting for me in the parking lot. <laughs> okay. This is a Mitsubishi Mirage. Uh, and I even love the name, like Mirage. Like, uh, okay, is, uh, is that just an image and there's actually an SUV under there? I mean, get a load of the wheels on this thing. There are shopping carts with better traction in the snow than this car. Those wheels are like a foot tall, no joke. Uh, so I didn't know if the guy was just mad at me or what had happened. Like, how are you going to give me this? I'm having uh, conversations in my head. You have conversations in your head. Uh, I didn't say this, but uh, I'm thinking to myself, like, hey, man, um, tell you what. Why don't we just skip to the end where instead you hand me the keys to my own death, right? <laughs> Why are you going to give me this? Three feet of snow coming. I didn't say that. I took the car. I put my customers in this car to go out to lunch. We're sliding all over the road. I'm praying to God. I'm like, please don't, help, don't let me kill anyone in this car. They're laughing, right? They're having a, just a great old time, I guess, in the back there. We're sliding all over the place. Their heads are literally hitting the top of the ceiling of this car. We stop at the restaurant, open up the doors, everybody gets out. It looks like those clowns getting out of the Volkswagen bug at the circus. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It was ridiculous. I did survive, though, and uh, I took the car back to the airport. And, and as I'm driving in to park it there where you check in, um, you know, you got truck, truck, SUV, truck, Mirage. And the, the lady that checks people in, she makes eye contact with me as I'm driving around the corner, and you can just see she's horrified. Like, she can't even understand how I ended up with this. She's the person that basically is hired to deal with outrage from guys like me that get cars like this, right? And I get out, get my luggage together. She comes up, and she's like, okay, okay. Um, is there anything that we could have done better aside from the fact that we gave you this car in this weather. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, you know, 
the car was great. You guys were great. I got no complaints. And she, she was just like this. She goes, well, you know, you have a Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. it uh, I, I did survive, right? God has kept me uh, breathing until now, which I'm hoping means he has some wonderful stuff for us to share together this morning. Um, it's my privilege to open the Word of God with you today as we continue on our series called One Story. One Story, well, we went too far somehow. Whatever, it'll be up anyway. Uh, one story where we look at the whole Bible by subsection to show that despite the fact that it was written over 1,500 years by multiple authors in multiple generations, in multiple places, in multiple languages, it all still tells one story. It's all one story about one individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And we're in the New Testament portion of that uh, journey together right now. A couple weeks ago, went through the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A week ago, Eugene covered the book of Acts, a wonderful sermon if you haven't caught it yet. Next week, like you said, we have Revelation. I know I'll see all of you next week. Um, and I am going to cover the portion that is sandwiched in between all of those. It's good, good stuff. Uh, consider this. Acts 2.42 says, and they, that's the new church, the brand new church in Acts, they developed, uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Oh, now wouldn't it be amazing to get teaching directly from the apostles themselves, like the very ones that Jesus himself sent out on his behalf? Well, we don't have the apostles here with us anymore, but um, we do have a good portion of what they wrote down preserved for us in our Bibles. Let's take a look together at some of that teaching this morning in our text. It comes to us from the Apostle of John. The Apostle John. If you don't have... <laughs> it's acting sort of weird, so this is not really what it looked like, but uh, that's okay. We'll make it work. Um, it's in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John 5. It's up on the screen. I'll read it to you. It says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, by the water only, but, the wa but by the water and the blood. And the, G and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes... In the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, we are so incredibly honored to have revelation from your word. God, that you imparted your word, your testimony to us. Lord, like Albina said moments ago, help us to encounter you here. Right? We pray that that's what we would experience by the power of your spirit. Equip your church to look like your son. We ask in his name. Amen. I'm a, um, a bit of an odd duck sometimes, I know, and I actually love a believer's funeral. Now, hear me say it correctly because this is a very fresh wound for our, our Mercy family, okay? I want to be respectful in how I say this. I did not say I enjoy a believer's funeral. I say I love a believer's funeral. Very different. Nobody likes attending a funeral. But what I'm trying to say is that it's such an incredible blessing to family and friends to live in such a way that those you leave behind have no doubt that you were saved. What a comfort that is, and what a gift to give. It's something only believers in Christ have. But there's something more. There's something even deeper at stake than that. We, we had a funeral service just weeks ago for a beloved member here, and um, I can honestly tell you that I, I never actually spoke with her. I didn't know her. Um, but like many in this room might say, I can certainly testify to you that despite the fact that I didn't know her, she, in fact, brought me closer to my God. How is that possible? How is it possible? I did never, I never even had a conversation with her, and yet she did that. The answer is testimony. Testimony. It's, in the believer's life, it's an affirmation, and the believer's death, it's a confirmation of the truth. It isn't just the life that's lived for Christ that testifies. It's also, powerfully, the testimony that others will give about that life. And I love what Eugene and Regina and Sergi's dad, Stepan Terpe, said at that memorial service just weeks ago. He said, I love the words of comfort that funerals bring. He called them the good words. That's so good. The good words. After Jesus left his disciples' side and went to heaven, what good words would his spiritual family have? That they could be comforted, that they could know God's purpose in Christ's life. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, he said to them, the night before he died. He was comforting them. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And those same apostles would take that testimony to the world, teaching, comforting, assuring us all that it was real. Thankfully, they wrote much of it down. And what they wrote down is called the epistles. The epistles, they are the good words that we have, the explanation that teaches us what the purpose was in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and return so that his family, that's you and me, 
can know what God's plan was through Jesus all along. God gave us the epistles that you may know that the way, the truth, and the life spoken of in Scripture was always Jesus. So what I'm driving at today, what I'd like us to explore is actually our confidence in our testimony of Jesus. I mean, can we be assured by things like the epistles that he alone is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life? I believe we can. First, we're going to need to quickly get acquainted with the basics of the epistles themselves. (laughs) It's going ahead on me, but that's fine. (laughs) The epistles are incredible. I got to take it away. Oh, probably shouldn't have done that. There you go. We'll leave it there. They're incredible books of the Bible, right? They're some of the most theologically deep and yet practically applicable books that we have in Scripture, right? They're written by several different authors. These are the epistles of Paul. We have the epistle of the Hebrews. We know much about the one who wrote it, but we don't specifically know his name. We have the epistle from James. We have two epistles from Peter. We have three epistles from John. Maybe. (laughs) There we go. And an epistle from Jude. 21 epistles in all. Uh, So there's some things to remember about the epistles. One is that um, the word itself might sound strange. It's not an English word. It comes from the Greek word epistole, which just means letter. That's the word for letter in Greek. Except an epistle is a letter that was meant to be read publicly, unless it was addressed to a specific person. We have a few of those, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Um, also, there's, there's a challenge that we have with the epistles that we might not have in other books of the Bible, and that's that because they're letters, they're one side of a correspondence, Okay. Uh, It'd be the same thing as if I gave you my phone and you went into the text and I deleted the half of the text that was from the other person. You only had my half of the text string and said, here you go, find out what we were talking about. Some places might be pretty challenging to uncover what it is that we were discussing, right? The epistles are just that. We'll see some of that later. And uh, like all of the books in the New Testament, the epistles were written either directly by an apostle or by someone who was directly under or with an apostle himself. So sometimes we have the mentality that there was somebody sitting in a dark room, you know, 2,000 years ago that was like, "Eh, I like what this guy said, we'll put it in the Bible. This one, I'll put it in the Bible. This, I don't like it, keep it out of here, right? Um, That's not how it happened, right? It was written by an apostle himself, or it was written by someone we know was with an apostle all the time. Very simple criteria, okay? Um, The epistles are what we call didactic. That's just a fancy word of saying they're teachings, okay? They're instructive, they're establishing truth and order, they're theological, they're practical. They have biblical insight and They're actually great for biblical interpretation. They're an amazing tool to use as a lens to look at the rest of Scripture and understand Scripture. 
We'll see some of that too. They're also what we call occasional, right? That doesn't mean that they happen so often. You know, it means that they were written to suit an occasion. There was a reason that they were written. Uh, that might be that they needed to be written to warn against false teaching that had sprung up in a church. They might have been written to address divisions in a church. Or maybe the church had written the apostle and asked questions about things like, what do we do about marriage and divorce, right? for instance. Uh, so that's some of the things as far as um, occasional goes. Encouragement, they're also great encouragement they have accolades for things done well. They show gratitude over the people that they're written to. And they have great calls for endurance. That's special stuff about the epistles. That's essentially Epistles 101. I know it's breezing right through the yeah, course here, but let's examine today's text and see the confidence that they bring us in Christ. Okay? John, in our text, says that we can be assured that we can testify Jesus is the way. Uh, he says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, our faith. He says our faith here. Um, that is not, okay, I want something so I'm going to believe it, and it'll be mine. Right? That's not faith. Uh, the true gospel isn't believe it, and you can be it. Okay, that's self-determinism. Sells well in our land of individualism, and you know, or pull your, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> it sells well here, but uh, that's not actually any good news. There's no hope of salvation there. It's false gospel. The true gospel of salvation is that there's something, more accurately, someone far more powerful than even my deepest and ugliest sin to have a relationship with. Faith speaks to our confidence in God, our relationship with God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things not seen. Faith is that assurance it is the victory in overcoming the world. See, you notice that John is equating victory and faith, right? Why is that? Well, it's because our relationship with God, our, our enduring trust in Him, if it's greater than everything that this world has to pull us away from Him, like the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, right? even the fear of death itself, if your faith is stronger than even your fear of death itself, nothing can hold victory over you. Nothing. If your hope, your love, your faith is, the one, is in the one who has the ultimate power in this universe, then no sin can hold power over you. That's the gospel. That faith, which is the strength of our relationship with Christ, right? It's victorious over sin, and it overcomes the world when, not if, when, the strength of our relationship with everything else pales by comparison. That's the gospel. But there's this um, sneaky little word that 
that John sticks in there. You probably saw it, right? Irritates a lot of people. It's the word accept, right? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, right? John's asking a rhetorical question there. He's suggesting that this gospel, this power of God for salvation, well, it certainly may be available to everyone, but, but John takes it as a given that's effective to those who believe and only to those who believe. Why does it have to be so exclusive? So exclusive? That's, that's so arrogant, right? You hear that sometimes? That's so arrogant. You say that Jesus is the only way. Right? It's so arrogant of you. Well, to settle some of that, let's, just so that I'm testifying the truth here, um, let's explore what another epistle says about that, okay? It's the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is a spectacular epistle. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I don't trust it. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews talks all about the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, right? The imagery of Christ in the Old Testament. Hebrews actually sets up the priesthood of Christ. It's one place that we really see that in the Bible. Now, a priest is a mediator between God and man. That's what a priest's function is. He is the one you go through to get to God. The priest is the way, all right? And what Hebrews establishes is that the priesthood that Jesus is a part of is the Melchizedek priesthood. Who's it, Melchizedek? There's like two sentences in the whole Old Testament about Melchizedek. Genesis 14, where he blesses Abraham, and Psalm 110, which is quoted right here, right? And out of those two little references, the author of Hebrews spectacularly builds an entire portfolio of who Melchizedek is, why his priesthood is over the Levitical priesthood, and why that's important when it refers to Jesus, okay? So in Hebrews 7, which is where we are here, we would not be able to put this together about Christ without the book of Hebrews. It says, and it was not without an oath. He's talking about the Melchizedek priesthood. For those who formerly became priests, the, the Levites, were made such without an oath. But this one, that's Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God is giving the oath. God is the one swearing Jesus into a priesthood. He will not change his mind, right? There will be no other priest. Oh, and you are a priest forever. He establishes Jesus as the priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, that's Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, right? That's us through the priest. He is the way. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those high priests, the Levites, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, that's the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was the oath, which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So much stuff. We could talk about the whole time, just this passage, right? But we don't have time to do that. Let me boil it all down. Here's the essence, okay? There can be and has been only one high priest who was unstained, one high priest holding permanent office, one high priest who lives forever, one high priest God himself has sworn into authority and into the highest priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, and one high priest offering a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for all time, for all sin, for all sinners. Can I assure you, believers and unbelievers alike, if you want to be sure about the way to God and God's way to true victory over sin, it is Jesus and it is Jesus only. Next. There it goes. The epistles give us confidence that Jesus really is the truth. John says in verse 6, this is he who came by the water and the blood. Looks okay. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, this is one of those places I'm talking about where we have one side of the correspondence. Very ambiguous, very tough to know with certainty what exactly John's talking about here. Some people think that the water refers to Jesus' baptism, the blood refers to his sacrifice, or maybe his communion, possible, uh, maybe. Um, I think probably not, oh, not that I could be dogmatic about it, but I think what it refers to actually is Jesus' divinity and his humanity. The reason I say that is that the early church fathers, uh, they said that this epistle was written by John to refute the Gnostics. Gnosticism was a heresy that John had to deal with quite a bit in his day. And I can't get into all the stuff in Gnosticism either, but the basics are essentially that Gnostics believed they, you, you couldn't be saved by faith. You were actually saved by what you knew, right? That's what Gnosko means to know. And um, you were saved by knowing the mystical secrets of the universe. One of those things that they had belief in was that there was this dualism. There was a struggle between the physical world where everything was bad, everything was negative, and the immaterial world where everything was divine and everything was good. Um, so you could probably understand that the Gnostics love that Jesus was God. They're all about him being divine. Like, oh yeah, he's God, great. Uh, but you can't quite stomach this idea that he was actually flesh and bone human being. No, 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 he wasn't that. Not if he was God, because we know flesh is bad. 
Well, that's a heresy. That's not true. And I think that's what John's refuting here. You say, he says, not just by the water, right? He wasn't just divine, but he was also flesh and bone human being, right? The water in the Greek mind is symbolic of divine power. It's eternal. It's pre-existent. Um, and uh, if, like, interestingly enough, if you cut open a Greek god, he bled, he bled water. He didn't bleed blood. So I think it refers to what's divine, and blood refers to Jesus' flesh, right? What's human? If you got other ideas, I'd love to hear them. Very interested in this. We're going to move past it. Um, notice that in verse 6, it says that the Spirit is the truth. That's a Trinity thing, right? God is certainly three in person, Father, Spirit, Son, but he is one in being. He is one in essence, which is to say that there is not a character trait in the Spirit that isn't in the Father or the Son, okay? If John says the Spirit is the truth, then Jesus is the truth. It's testifying to that. You also see that he talks about the two or the three that testify, right? That's referring back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament said that there needed to be testimony of two or three witnesses if you wanted to establish truth. Um, the reference for that, if you want to see it, is in Deuteronomy 19, 19.15 specifically. So let's go to the next portion here. Verse 9 says, if we, re- if we receive the testimony of men, if we take what other people to say, say as truth readily enough, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now, what sticks out to me like a sore thumb here, maybe it does to you too, made him a liar. We can't make God a liar. God, God doesn't lie, right? Let me establish that in perfect clarity. God is not a liar. Uh, in fact, God can do the impossible, but we're told in Titus that one of the things God cannot do is lie. God cannot lie. So why would John say something like that? What, what's he getting at? I think it's something like this. Um, have you ever tried to share your faith with someone who is not a believer? And maybe you're, you're engaging at least, but they, they seem to kind of be on the fence, right? They'll say things like, oh, I don't know. Or, uh, well, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's there we go. I want proof. Um, I'll pass what <laughs> spiritually possessed okay <laughs> they're laughing back there too so that's fine anyway we'll get there whoa <laughs> I don't know if it's gonna work anyway they say stuff like this okay um well seems like there's some gray area there, right? But you can actually know what's in a person's heart, what they really believe. Um, you know, if I said something like, Ben, someone is stealing your car right now. Does he believe me? He's not going anywhere, right? He doesn't believe me. 
How do I know that? I know by what he says, by what he does. His own life shows me what he believes is true. There really is no gray area. I mean, you testify to something. Every one of us does. Nice to get. There we go. And your words, your actions, your life, even your death testify to the truth God has borne concerning his son or not. Right? I mean, if you asked me, is Eugene a truthful person? Does Eugene tell the truth? I'm like, eh, I don't know. Like, eh, I might want proof of that one. Right? I, I didn't call him a liar, did I? But I made him one. Right? There's, there's a common thread in all of this, a common thread of deception that if we changed the perception, we would have a different take on someone's testimony. We wouldn't have an indecisive testimony or what we perceive as an indecisive testimony. That deception is time. Time, right? We seem to think that we possess it, that we know what it brings, that we own it, and the fact of the matter is we do not. We do not have time like we think we do. Um, let me show you what I'm talking about. Does anybody know what this thing is? Right, this is a Houdini water tank, right? Houdini was like the greatest escape artist of all time. If I brought one of these in here, I put you in it, shackled you up, and I'm like filling it up with water. As it gets up to your neck, I say, okay, this is the key that will unlock all of the locks and get you out of the tank. Um, would you like to have this key, or would you just prefer to go ahead and Houdini your way out on your own? In that moment, you might say a lot of things. You'd probably be cursing my name, right? But, but one thing I am confident you will not say is, I don't know. I'm not ready. I want proof. To my unbelieving friends, who may be listening, or here with us today. Please, don't hold out for proof even to your own demise. It'd be a dreadful thing for you to discover the proof that finally meets your satisfaction when it's too late, and you're face to face with him who is the truth and on the wrong terms. Let's talk about he says, the testimony of God. The testimony of God can certainly be the teaching of the apostles, right? They spoke on God's behalf. God was the one who actually sent them. Um, but I think it isn't just that. I think it's even more specific than that here. We're going to take a look at another epistle to sort of hash that out. Um, the epistle that we're looking at that helps us with the testimony of God is Second Peter. In chapter 1, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were 
with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I love this stuff. I love it. Peter is saying, our testimony is trustworthy, right? One, because we were actually eyewitnesses. We didn't get it from another guy. We got it from Jesus himself. We, we were with him. But they also said that our testimony is true because we were actually there hearing it from God himself, right? God spoke a testimony. You see that there? He is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's referring to the transfiguration, right? That's what Peter's pointing to here. There's accounts of it. Um, one of the accounts is in Matthew 17. We won't turn there, but I'll give you the gist of it. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a mountain. He's transfigured before them, right? Radiant face, bright white clothes. All of a sudden, Moses, who is the representative of the Old Testament law, appears. Elijah, who is the representative of the Old Testament prophet, appears. They're speaking with Jesus. Peter doesn't know what to say, so he says, Hey, Lord, it's good that we're here. Why don't we build three tents, one for each of you? And no sooner does he say that, but then a cloud overshadows them, and you hear God speak, and what God says is, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when they look up, there's nobody there but Jesus only. Right? That's a powerful image for us. Peter made the mistake of thinking that he could somehow elevate Jesus' status to that of the Old Testament. And God, God himself corrects him. God says, no, 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 this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then you notice that there's no law and no prophets left because they were all pointing to Jesus in the first place. That's the transfiguration. And that's the testimony of God. His testimony's greater because... God's the one doing the testifying, of course, but it's also because of who he's testifying about. I mean, think of it this way. Parents, concerning your son or daughter, let's say you're trying to discuss a truth. You're trying to convince someone of a truth about your son or daughter. Let's say that that truth is that your son or daughter is deathly allergic to peanuts, right? We have that, peanut allergies is a very dangerous thing. And you're trying to tell this to a school nurse or a babysitter or one of their friends. Uh, tell me this, what could be more vitally important to you than that the person you're telling this to is believing you? Probably nothing, right? I mean, because life is actually at stake. Friends, that's how crucial us believing God is in what he himself tells us is the truth of Jesus. There could be nothing more valuable to him than his own son. And his son's own life, a life given, a life sacrificed, is at stake. 
when, what you're testifying to others and to God when you don't believe that Jesus is the truth is that his life and consequently his death didn't matter. Let's talk about that life. John shows us that we can know Jesus is the life. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that's packed with assurance, isn't it? We love this stuff. Believe in the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. It's good, good stuff. But I, I'd like us to focus on maybe a finer point that John's making here. I hope we're careful not to miss. Uh, you know, I'm sometimes asked, can someone lose their salvation? Right? And, and by that, the person asking pretty much always means, can someone lose eternal life? And uh, look, I'm not here to uh, stir up controversy here today. I'm not going to settle that debate up here, all right? It won't happen. Um, look, both sides of that argument, I think we can agree. Both sides of that argument agree with what the text says here, that if you believe, then you have eternal life. But the problem uh, with the question is not the sentiment of the question. It's the way the question's framed in the first place, right? And what we take life to be exactly, right? John says that God gave us eternal life. And then he qualifies the statement by clarifying that this life is in his son. Take a look at the language that the epistles use I bet you money this doesn't work. Hold on a second. Okay. In 1 first, in first John, right? John says that the life was made manifest, right? That's Jesus. He doesn't use the name Jesus in the whole passage. He says the life. He says the eternal life. That's referring to Jesus. Uh, Paul uses similar language in Colossians 3. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. At the end of 1 John, the second to last verse of the whole epistle, John says, and we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that's the way, so that we may know him who is true, that's the truth, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life, that's the life. He is God. He is eternal life. Think about what John 3.16 says. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. What's it say? That God so loved the world that he gave everyone eternal life? No, no. It said God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Eternal life is not the real gift. Eternal life is like a fringe benefit of the real gift. Jesus is the real gift. And Jesus is the real life. You know, life isn't something that's handed over to you like a ticket to the carnival you need to hold on to until after you die. Like somehow something that belongs to you or it's something that 
you do, if all the right things are in the right place. No, that's, that's what the world chases. That's what all the false religions and teachings adhere to, that if one does enough good and obeys enough rules, then that one can earn an eternal bliss of some sort. Right? It's not Christianity. Let me just show you what, in general, the world seems to think life is. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's gone again. <clears throat> right? Here's, oh, there we go. The world thinks that life right now is mine, right? I'm the one who possesses it. Life after I die, if it exists, is achievable to possess. But for us, right, we have something different. You want to know what makes Christianity different? What sets those who follow Jesus so radically apart from this and everything else? It's that life, we believe, life isn't something that is given to you. Life is someone who was given for you. That's the gospel we live and breathe every day. That's what the people who follow Christ know. That someone, that someone, is the eternal one. That someone is the one we draw endless life from. If you don't have him, you don't ultimately have life either. A really cool thing to show you in the pistol. We're not going to have time. So I want to scoot to the end here. If I can get to it pointing to something in 1 Corinthians. We won't do it. But <clears throat> the way, the truth, the life. Know it, okay? It's Jesus. Just to conclude, does anybody know this girl here? Or maybe you've seen her on the news. I, I certainly don't know her myself. I, her name's Maggie, by the way, Maggie Ogden. I know Maggie through a guy that's in my Saturday morning men's life group who is a very, very good friend of Maggie's family. They're very close. And uh, Maggie, she's a Christian superstar, right? She, uh, she excelled in high school, uh, very talented academically, athletically. She got a scholar, athlete scholarship. She graduated this year from high school very influential in her faith. She started at a Christian university in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, actually just had her 18th birthday like eight weeks ago. Two nights after her 18th birthday, she's up late with some friends, and they all decide that what they really want to do is go see the sunrise at the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know it's just a spectacular piece of God's majesty and creation. It's an amazing thing. If you've been there too, you know it's quite a trek from Phoenix. It's like a four-hour drive, right? So at 2 a.m., they leave to go catch the sunrise at the Grand Canyon. And about two hours or so into the trip, uh, sadly, this happened. There was a driver who was heavily impaired by drugs or alcohol or both, driving full speed down the freeway in the wrong direction. He survived. Maggie and her two roommates, all three died. 
devastating, absolutely devastating. This just happened. And uh, Bob, the guy who's in my life group, um, he's devastated over it. All the friends are, of course, and uh, could not make sense of it. He went to Maggie's memorial service and reported back to us that what he could testify to in Maggie's life, what he had learned through Maggie's death, was that Maggie was a Christian superstar, and her future in Christ looked so, so bright and amazing. But Bob said, this life can end at any moment. And when it does, at that point, whoops, I don't know. Whoa. <laughs> this life can end at any moment. And when it does, at that point, your record is your record. Isn't that powerful? At that point, your record is your record. Maggie's record points us to Christ and says to testify about him with all that you are today. Right? So here's the question for us to consider, Okay. This is like the last slide, so no more slide craziness, okay? With the life that you've been given, what will you testify to? What is going to be your record? It's being written today, this very moment, I can assure you. And heaven forbid, there may not be tomorrow. There wasn't for Maggie. In being assured, given confidence in places like the epistles, to know that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, what will you do with that assurance? What is your record going to be? God gave us the epistles as the good words, following the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus as a record left after the apostles themselves would be gone that could instruct us, edify us, assure us in our own testimony of Christ. When our time is over, whether it's five decades from now or five hours from now, remember, at that point, your record is your record. Friends, let me ask you, what's your record going to look like? What will you leave behind? And what will be the good words spoken at that time? More importantly, who will those good words of your life testify to? Lord, we're so thankful for this. We're thankful for your testimony of truth. Help us and equip us that we would go out and testify that truth to others that, that the world would know our good King and Creator. We lift you high today. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.